Today's sermon is called Flee. It's titled Flee, F-L-E-E. All right, and we'll get right to it. There's a quite a bit of things to cover here. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 22 is where we're going to be preaching out of. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 14 to 22. Just a little background here. Church, we're in the Church Matters series, and we've been focusing on relationships. We've fo- covered things such as marriage, singleness, our relationship with one another as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We've, now we're focusing on our relationship with Christ himself. And the Corinthian church, the, who this uh, letter is written to, they were saved people. They've come to know Christ. But they're vacillating in between two worlds, right? They were with Christ, yet... They flirted with the world. They had one foot in with Christ, one foot in with the world. And they let their liberties go too far. I mean, as Christians, we're free in Christ, amen? However, they let these liberties go way, 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 way too far. And they went back to the idols, temples, and they were eating in these feasts that were dedicated to worshiping these idols. They thought, you know what? I'm free in Christ. I could handle it. This is fine. Well, Paul had another word for them in this. So, in essence, they were free to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but they weren't free to go back to these worship services. That's the difference, right? They're thinking, you know what? This is all good. No, it wasn't, Paul saying. So, today we're going to focus in on our relationship with Christ. Let's uh, rise as we hear the word of God uh, read, 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 22. I'll be reading out the NASB version. Paul writes, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifice eat the sacrifice of shares in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, to demons. And I don't want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot, cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot. Partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to preach your word. God, I pray that your spirit will allow us to understand your word. Allow us to have a greater view of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to love him more. Thank you, Lord, so much for the opportunity to preach your word. What a privilege. And I pray your word, your, your spirit would allow your word to be embedded into our hearts. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. This part of scripture is like prime rib, okay? So I'm not going to try to mess this up and overcook it, okay? This speaks for itself. And anytime a preacher preaches, they have two goals in mind. One is to explain the scriptures clearly. What did the author mean when he wrote it? That's when you hear God's word. Secondly, 
We want to raise our affections for Christ. Meaning, since we have a clear picture of who Jesus is, if you're a Christian, how can you not love him more? So this is the goal. Hopefully, by God's grace, this will happen today. Like I said, today's sermon title is Flee. It's titled Flee, F-L-E-E. And I've had the privilege, since becoming a pastor, of doing quite a bit of premarital counseling sessions. And uh, this has been a great privilege. I love it because precious lives are opened up to me and I'm able to get to know brothers and sisters at a more intimate level. I love it. And as I get to get involved in these premarital counseling sessions, I'm drawn back. I'm taken back to my old days with, before I, when I was single and when I asked my wife, Charlotte, will you marry me? All right? I, I just didn't explain things. I, I called for a decision there, okay? It's kind of like evangelism. You've got to call for a decision, right? And so I, what happened was this. Back in 2003, when my younger days as a coach, we got to play in the Orange Bowl. We're in Miami, South, South Florida. And uh, thank God we won the game because the plan was to propose to her uh, on the beaches of, of Miami and to say, hey, will you marry me? I don't know what would have happened. I'll, t- I'll be honest with the church family if we had lost that game because it might have put me in a bad mood or put me off a little bit. But by God's grace, we won. We beat the Iowa Hawkeyes, and it was a big game. And this was kind of one of the big uh, markers in my career. And so I took her out afterwards, the game, early in the morning. I walked her to the beach and got on one knee and says, Charlotte, will you marry me? And I like to share that story with those that we do premarital counseling because it's kind of draws us and takes us back to those times when we were just single and kind of uh, full of optimism in, in our relationship as a married couple. And I remember as we approached our wedding date, we had premarital counseling by a guy named Mike Sylvester. Mike Sylvester is a foundational man in my life. He personally discipled me at the University of Southern California. He and his wife, Dee, they did a great job of just teaching us priorities. You have to prioritize this marriage, your relationship to Charla. Your children can't rival this. Other friends cannot rival this. Work cannot even rival this relationship with Charlotte. You must prioritize this relationship with her. And that was very clear to me. And as I read Ephesians 5, 31, 32, basically Ephesians 5, 31, 32 says this. Marriage is a metaphor in our relationship with Christ. Christ is the bridegroom. We're the bride. The church is the bride. In essence, we're united to Christ forever. Marriage is a lifetime commitment. Christ is committed to us for eternity. And we're called not to have any rivals with Christ. And unfortunately, the Corinthians were straying away. They're kind of flirting with idols. And perhaps the church today is doing the same thing. So Paul... The Apostle Paul gives us spiritual marriage counseling today, okay? This is important because we're wedded to Christ. We want to be faithful to him. So before we get into the points, I want to give you the points ahead of time so you can follow along a little bit easier. Paul's four points are this. Remember that we are ordered to flee, point number one. Point number two, remember that we are one with Christ, one with Christ. Point number three is remember that we are opposed to demons, opposed to demons. And point number four, we are, remember that we are only, only for Christ, exclusive relationship. So let's get to Paul's first point here in his uh, 
marital counsel to us, spiritual marital counselor to us. Point number one, remember that we are ordered, ordered, fill in the blank, ordered to flee. Verse 14 and 15 says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, flee. And based on the warnings that, that Paul gives us earlier in chapter 10, how the Israelites were not faithful to the Lord, and how many of them were disqualified, right? We had a graphic reminder of that last week. Paul writes, therefore, since you know how serious God is about this relationship that you have with him, flee from idolatry, right? This word flee is, in the original language, fuego. Fuego is the word that we get for our word fugitive, all right? Fugitives are constantly on the run. They don't want to get trapped by the authorities. Paul is saying, basically, be like a fugitive and run away from idolatry. You don't want to get trapped by idols. Right? They will imprison you. They will put you in spiritual jail. Run. You're like the running man, as Pastor Paul demonstrated. You're running. You're running. And, it's, it's, and it's, it's in the present tense, meaning it's an ongoing thing. This isn't a one-time decision. Okay, I'm going to flee from idols. No. This is an everyday, every moment, every thought even moment thing. we got to flee from idolatry. In essence, Paul is saying, flee run away from these spiritual mistresses called idols, right? This is a a command that God gives us, flee. And what is idolatry, you may ask, right? Maybe you're nearer to the faith. Maybe you've heard the word idols or idolatry before, but you're not quite sure what this means. Maybe when you think about an idol, you think of like at a Buddhist temple, you see this big image, or you go to the uh, pho pho store, you see this uh, kind of this image hanging behind the uh, cashier register. You may be thinking about those things. Those are idols, But idols are much more than that, okay? And John Calvin, the reformer, says this, the heart, the human heart is an idol factory. The human heart is an idol factory. That's John Calvin. In essence, meaning idols are common to all men, Christians and non-Christians. So we need to listen up. This is not something that Christians are immune to. Even Christians are affected by idols. Tim Keller goes even deeper into this explanation of an idol factory. He writes, The human heart is an idol factory that takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. An idol is something we cannot live without. This is Tim Keller. Isn't that pretty clear? An idol is something other than God that we must have. I need to have this. Otherwise, I don't have life itself. Reading further from what Tim Keller says, we think that idols are bad, but that is almost never the case. Almost anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the best things in life. In idols, anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that... Should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living for. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life and identity, then it is an idol. So this is what an idol is. Is that pretty clear? It could be anything. 
anything. And, and as Tim Keller points out, it's usually not bad things in our life. I want to talk a little bit about functional versus dysfunctional idols. Let me talk about dysfunctional idols firstly. Okay, dysfunctional idols. These are things such as drugs, alcohol, sex. I mean, if you serve these things like as idols, they're going to make you very dysfunctional in life, in particular in the church. It's going to be obvious that you have a problem. It's going to knock you out. All right? But I think for church-going people, the more dangerous ones are the functional idols. These are the good things that Tim Keller talked about. Family, career, education, sports. Even in 2020, perhaps we've been thinking about more of our physical health than our spiritual health. Health could be an idol. Maybe politics. Maybe we got so wrapped up into who's going to be the next president or certain policies that our hope rested in these things more than Christ. These are idols. Maybe even social media, you felt the pressure of having to kind of cave into the ways of the world and you might have compromised on a few posts. These are idols wanting to be accepted. These are functional idols where you could still function as a Christian and appear to have a Christian veneer. But deep down inside, we're serving another God. His name, is not, his name is not Jesus. These are all these other things. These are idols. And in the, like I said earlier, these could be more dangerous because the dysfunctional idolater, it's obvious. You need some help. You're strong out on drugs. You, you have a lot of problems. But the functional idolater is able to cover these things up and hide behind the Christian veneer behind these things. And Paul's basically saying, flee from these things, run away. You're a fugitive, run away from these things. These things are not going to fulfill you. They're going to hurt you. And Paul's a master uh, motivator. Verse 15, he gives them this charge, but then he also appeals to their sensibilities. Verse 15 says, says this, I speak as to wise men, you, meaning you could tell what's right or not wrong. You know, you, you guys are sensible people. You judge what I say. Determine for yourself what I'm saying to you. Is it right or wrong? Paul's not just throwing it at them. Paul's kind of drawing it out. Think about what I'm about to tell you. And from the, from the rest of the verses on, he gives a series of questions so that the Corinthians could think about them. And these are very obvious questions, so they should be able to answer them without even Paul answering. So this is what Paul says. Flee from idolatry. Run from idolatry. Let's move on to our second point. Paul's second point is to flee and remember that we are one with Christ. Fill in the blank. One with Christ. One with Christ. I'm married, and uh, we're going to be married for almost 18 years, and uh, I'm sure, hopefully, all of us who are married, or you've watched your parents who are married, Go on anniversary dinners, right? Anniversary dinners are important. You make a reservation for two, not for three or four or five, but two, right? And this is an opportunity for us to affirm our love for one another over a special meal, maybe the, the, our old favorite spot that we used to go to before we got married. This is an opportunity to remember the past. Do you remember when I proposed to you? Do you remember our wedding date? Do you remember us saying our vows, all right? But also to dream into the future. Honey, where do you want to be 10 years from now? 
Do you see us retiring here forever? You know, to dream into the future by doing these things, brothers and sisters, we understand that they strengthen the present relationship. Right? You think about the good old days. You think about those optimistic days when things, before things got really hectic and hard. The idealistic view of marriage. Right? You think about those things. And you think about, all right, let's keep this thing going. And that strengthens the, the relationship in the present. Verse 16, Paul talks about communion. And, and let me just read this verse here for us, because this is a foundational verse for us to understand that communion is like that, an anniversary meal. Verse 16 says this, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Question mark. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? This word sharing... Is koinonia, as we talked about last week. This word in the original language means fellowship, partnership, union. Meaning when we take this anniversary meal, for us we do it monthly, we basically affirm to Christ, yes, I identify with you, I'm united with you in your death when we recognize his blood. That means I died to myself and I, I died with you, Jesus And then when we take the bread, which represents the body of Christ, this is that we're united or we're uh, we're in fellowship with his life. I don't live for myself anymore. I live for you, Christ. Jesus, I don't live for this world anymore. I live for eternity. I don't live for the kingdom of darkness anymore. I live for the kingdom of light. I'm part of your kingdom now, Jesus. I'm with you. You're my God, and I am yours. Right? This is very important that we understand this. This is why the Lord has us doing and take, partaking in the ordinance of communion on a regular basis. You see that? Just as you would have your spouse on an anniversary meal. Right? This is to remember why we do this. And verse 17 says this, since there is one bread, we, all, we who are many, talking about the church family, are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Meaning, not only are we affirming our commitment to Christ, the reason why when we gather together to take communion, we're looking around and say, okay, we're all part of Christ too. We're also affirming our commitment and love for one another as well. This is critical that we understand this. This is not just just you and me, Jesus. No, no, no. It's you and me, Jesus. But there's also a horizontal affirming that takes place too. Yes, I can see I'm not alone in this dark world. There's other believers that believe the same thing. There are other believers that say that we're connected to Christ. Right? This is a very important thing. John MacArthur comments on communion By writing, when believers partake of communion in faith, the Holy Spirit uses these symbols as sensitizers to kindle our spirits in awareness and appreciation of our Lord's great ministry and sacrifice for us. In essence, we remember the past, just like an anniversary meal. We remember the past when Christ died for us. We remember the future that he secures our eternity with him. And this strengthens our present reality that we're connected and unified with Christ. Right? We're one with Christ. Just like an anniversary meal. And you never, ever invite a third or fourth or fifth person with you, right? You certainly wouldn't invite another, your mistress with you to that anniversary meal you have with your spouse, would you? 
I mean, my wife will grab the steak knife and get after me in that moment, right? I got to watch my, my jugular vein. I mean, she will, she will not miss. You would not bring your mistress with you to the anniversary dinner. You just wouldn't do that. And I know as absurd and as crazy as that scenario may sound, this is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. When they're coming to the Lord's table, bringing on these idols and their hearts were still attached to the old way of life, this is exactly what they're doing. They're taking communion and saying, yes, I love you, Jesus, but I also love my mistresses. That doesn't work. We know that doesn't work. And this is what happened in Corinth and what was happening So this moves us to our third point. Paul's third point is to flee and remember that we are opposed, opposed to demons. When one gets married, it's part of the premarital counseling session. We've got to understand, define what marriage is. This basically, when you get married to your your spouse, your husband or your wife, you basically are forsaking all other relationships in that way, right? We understand this. That means that there are certain uh, intimate affections that's only reserved for my wife or your husband, my sisters. And they were constantly on guard to protect that union. Constantly, right? I mean, you, we don't want to put ourselves in weird situations or any uh, f- form of temptation. We are constantly on the guard. Right? You got to protect the marriage. And the Corinthians were basically saying, we're just friends. We're just friends. This is okay. I could go to the temple and, and, and partake in these feasts. I'm, I, I'm fine. I know I'm in Christ, but we're just friends. I'm just, I'm just, we're okay. The Corinthians were saying these idols were just friends. But Paul says, wait, hold on now. In verse 18, it says this. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Meaning, don't they have koinonos or fellowship or partnership with these altars? Basically, Paul was saying, look, hold on now. Hold on. What did I just get done telling you about the Israelites? How they sacrificed to the golden calf and they started partying and eating. They were sacrificing to this idol. They knew exactly what you, they were doing. How come you don't get this, Corinthians? You cannot... Partake in these worship services and think you're not worshiping and fellowshipping with these idols. In verse 19, Paul says, what do I mean then? More questions, right? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? These are rhetorical questions. The answer is certainly no. He's already covered it already in 1 Corinthians 8.4 that idols are nothing. Right? As Brother James read in, in, in Psalm one, uh, 115, these idols are just carved images. They're just things. They're, there's no gods behind these idols. And then, so what's the big deal then? Why can't I just hang out with these idols? What's the, what's the big deal? Why can't I just keep some of these trinkets for myself and still be in Christ? It's not about the carved image. It's not about the the thing molded in gold and silver. It's not about that, Paul says in verse 20. No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, and Gentiles, non-believers, sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. Paul is basically saying, whenever you worship an idol, you're worshiping demons. This is a very serious thing. You are worshiping demons. 
And you may be asking, Pastor, what are demons? Are these things real? Right? I think this is important for us to understand this. Who and what are demons? Well, first of all, I think it starts with our father, Satan himself. Satan, known as the devil, the serpent, the dragon. He's known as the father of lies, right? John, in John chapter 8, verse 44, he is known as the father of lies. And his desire is to be worshipped. He wants to take away worship from God and have himself be worshipped. And you know how convincing he was? He was able to convince a third of the angels, third of God's once holy angels, and they fell. A third of God's angels became demons. Demons are fallen angels. Demons are absolutely real. Church family, I don't want to alarm you, but demons are absolutely real. And and they have power. And how do they exercise their power? Well, just like the father of lies, Satan, they use lies. They, they copy their father, their devil. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 says that there are fortresses, speculations. They, the, the word in the Greek is logismos. There's, there's uh, stacks and stacks of lies a network of lies set up against the knowledge of God. Basically, demons use lies. And they try to convince Christians and non-Christians to think that there's something more than God. There's something greater than God. You need more than Jesus Christ in your life, Christian, Corinthians, Evergreener. You need something more than, than Jesus in your life. These are doctrines of demons. To, and in essence, they, they, they're trying to set up a system of lies built to command and own our allegiance to these things. They're trying to draw away our allegiance, our loyalty, our fidelity away from Christ to other things. And we to created things. They want us to worship created things just like the demons are created things rather than the creator himself. himself. So Paul is very serious here now. Paul is exhorting the church, hey, you need to cut this out. This is not compatible with your, in your life with Christ. Verse 20 finishes off this way. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons or partners, coining us with demons. I don't want you to be making your bed with these demons, Corinthians. You are being united to these demons, this is a very serious thing that Paul is talking about. Verse 21 says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table demons. You can't. You just cannot do that. Traveling to Japan, there's a lot of shrines, there's a lot of temples. Buddhist shrines have, are notorious for images that look, literally look like demons, I mean, they look like demons. You don't have to convince anyone, man, that looks evil. But in America, I'd say the demons are better disguised, right? Demons have influence over our culture, over the media. Demons have influence over entertainment, the arts, technology, even, the, even academia. There's influence in these ways. They're not wearing these hideous masks or these faces. They're kind of hidden behind the goodness of some of these things. And that's our culture. That's the kingdom of darkness. So let's not be surprised when the kingdom of darkness is acting this way. But my bigger concern as a pastor is this. 
when the culture influences our church, that's my bigger concern. Because those of us who affirm that we're in Christ are saying that we're married to Christ. If someone's married to the world, they can't help it. This is just what they do. And so this is where in the Christian life, we need to be fleeing as well from idolatry. We cannot drink the cup of the demons and the, and the cup of the Lord. That, that is just incompatible. You cannot do both of them. And I just think to myself as, it, as we move on here, what things capture our hearts? I mean, do, like I said earlier briefly, do certain politicians capture our hope more than others? Then Christ, do you find more hope in these political figures? Maybe in certain policies, just like, hey, if only this thing passes, we'll be okay. Or if only this thing is defeated, we'll be okay. Yes, let's do our part. God's given us stewardship to get involved in these things, but let's not let our hearts wander to these things. Yes, we're called to take care of our physical health. We should work out. I like to jog. I kind of watch what I eat sometimes, right? I want to be careful as I cross the street. I put on a seatbelt. I understand that. But we don't live for this world. Right? The enemy will love for us to idolize our physical health so that we're on the sidelines. So we're absolutely, I mean, I put myself in a plastic bag and I'm not going to touch anything or anyone anymore. We got to get out of that. We need to know that we're competing for eternal, eternity here. This is important that we understand this. I mean, these are some of the things that perhaps the Lord has really stirred up and revealed to our, our hearts what is most important. Remember, trials reveal where we're at. Take full advantage of the 2020 spiritual vision that God's been giving us. We're seeing things more clear today, are we not? Just finish up here with our fourth and final point here. Paul's fourth and final point is to flee and remember that we are only for Christ. We're only for Christ. When you say, I do, that means you're only for your spouse, for life. But when you say, I do to Christ, that means you're only for Christ for eternity. Let me just read here some uh, verse 22. We'll finish up here. Verse 22 says, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Does that shock you when Paul says, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? All right? Did you know that God is a jealous God? Exodus 20 verse 5 says this, I am a jealous God. This is the same God from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God has a righteous jealousy there's a bad type of jealousy. There's a good type of jealousy. This is rooted in what's right. This is rooted in strong relationships with Jesus and the church. This is clearly defined relationships where Jesus says, I am yours, you are mine, church. It's an exclusive relationship. And God demands and expects the love that only belongs to him. Right? And the reason why I use the analogy of marriage is that many of us could relate to this. Like, how would I feel 
if my spouse brought a mistress home to my home? Does it drive you crazy? You will be jealous. You should be jealous. You shouldn't be like, oh, okay, well, I guess that's how it is. No, you should feel a certain ire within you. That's godly. Spouses feel it for each other. Even parents to our children. There's a certain affection that our, our parent, mothers and fathers have their, with their children. There's a certain affection that you would expect from your best friends, right? A certain level of loyalty, a certain level of regard. We understand this at the most intimate, personal, special relationships in our life. God is a jealous God. And it's interesting as I, to kind of go a little bit deeper. Why was he so jealous? Think about it. Let's use the Israelites as, a, as an example here. The Israelites, God created them. The Israelites, God chose them. They're the least, and God chose them. They were nobodies, and God chose them to be his special people, to be the apple of his eye, to be his covenant people. God gave them promises. You know what? I'm gonna, you're going to be my people. You're going to be my representative to the whole world. Through you, Israel, we're going to have the word. Through you, Israel, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is going to come and save the world. Israel, you're my special people. I did everything for you. And then when Israel turned to these idols, God was jealous. And God was jealous for Israel for good reasons, for obvious reasons. Any one of us would have been jealous if we were God in that situation. We understand this. But now God is jealous for the church. God is jealous for the church. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians here. 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1. This is going to be very clear what, what Paul's heart is with, with the Corinthian church. Very clear. 2 Corinthians 11, same church, a second letter that Paul wrote. Verse 1 of chapter 11. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me, all right? Verse 2, for I'm jealous for you. This is what Paul writes. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. See that? There is a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you. See that now, church family? I betrothed you to one husband. Who is that husband? That's Christ. So that to Christ, I might present you as a pure virgin. Paul, in essence, by introducing the gospel to the Corinthians, Paul, in essence, was officiated that wedding. Paul introduced Christ to the Corinthians. And Paul had this godly jealousy. He was very protective as their officiant of that union. He's saying, look, look, you're supposed to be pure. You're supposed to be set apart only for Christ. Verse 3, this is the issue. But I'm afraid that as a serpent, that's the deceiver, that's the father of lies, that's Satan himself, deceived Eve by his craftiness. He's sneaky. He's not going to just come to you in your face. He's going to go through around you. He's going to present to you something good with a bunch of poison in it. 
He through his, deceived Eve by his craftiness. Your mind, see, it's a, it's a truth war. What do you believe? Your mind is what you will affect your heart. What do you believe as to be true? Say, demons and Satan deals with lies. The Bible, Christ deals with truth. Your minds will be led astray from what? What is the essence of Christian life all about? Here it is. Your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That is what Christianity is about. Do you love Christ? It's simple. The simplicity is not complex. Just like you could relate to one of your deepest relationships on earth, Christ is our greatest relationship. Mike Sylvester, during our premarital counseling, said, your wife is your priority. Next to Christ. Christ is number one. Your wife is... Number two, that should never rival, she should never rival Christ. Good counseling there. And Paul's doing the same thing. He's giving us marital counsel to the Corinthians saying, why are you chasing after these spiritual mistresses? Christ is all you got, all you need. You've been led astray, Corinthians, by the world. You don't need these idols. You don't need this wisdom of the world. You don't need reputation. You don't need wealth. You don't need to be famous, okay? You don't need all these things. You just need Christ. And all that Christ wants is purity of devotion to him. Is that clear? And I can't think of a better verse than that that kind of ties this whole message together. And then look at what it ends up with here in verse 22. Of 1 Corinthians, back to 1 Corinthians 10, 22. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Question mark. Another question to finish off his point. We are not stronger than he. Are we? Question mark. I mean, these are obvious questions that Paul is saying. They're rhetorical questions, more statements than anything else. Of course we're not stronger than God. Of course we're not stronger than the creator. Of course not. Christ is the greatest power of all. Christ is stronger than all of us. Yet, he pursues you and I. Think about that. Although we provoked him, although he's stronger than us, he could destroy us in a moment. He's been very patient with us. The one with all the power is the one who is pursuing us to reconcile with us. And I want to just finish up here and kind of prepare our hearts to sing song of praise here in a moment after I get done praying here. We have one more song, and uh, the worship team was gracious enough to accommodate me and, and have this song sung for us. And I want to exhort us to sing our hearts out here. Because just like an anniversary meal where we remember the past, we think about the present, 
and then we think about the future, this song has it all. This song is titled, And Can It Be? And my wife, my children could tell you I'm constantly singing this. Not well, but, I, but I'm constantly singing it at home. And this little bit of history of the song is that a man named Charles Wesley wrote this song. Charles Wesley was used mightily by the Lord. He wrote over 6,500 hymns. Can you imagine that? 6,500 hymns. Are you kidding me? But this is, a, this is the hymn that he wrote upon coming to Christ. This is the, song, the, the hymn that he wrote that just exploded out of his gratitude for Christ when he fr- really understood that he was in Christ. And I'm going to read some things that relate to the past. And I would highly encourage you to sing with, and drink deeply from these truths as you, as you sing to the Lord here at the conclusion of our service. The past, Charles Wesley writes, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Still in the past, he left his Father's throne above. So free, so infinite, his grace emptied himself of all but love. He took on the form of human flesh and bled for Adam's helpless race. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And into the present, long my imprisoned spirit lay. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And then into the future, No condemnation now I dread. Alive in him, my living head. Bold I approach the eternal throne. Someday we will approach the eternal throne. That day is coming. And claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? This is like the anniversary meal that we're going to have at communion next month. But this is an opportunity now to really reflect and to affirm that we believe what happened in the past, to reflect and affirm what has been promised to us in the future, and to strengthen our present with our Christ. Amen? So let's get ready to sing as loud as we can and present an offering that's pleasing to the Lord. Drink deeply from these words as you sing them. Okay? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this time to uh, preach your word. Lord, you are so gracious. God, you're so good. And we acknowledge, Lord, idolatry in our lives. It's a struggle for all of us. And you graciously had Paul give us some spiritual counsel here. So, Father, I we repent, Lord, for our sins, for chasing after these spiritual mistresses, for settling for mere trinkets when you are the greatest treasure of all. Father, thank you that you say you are faithful. Help us to be more faithful to you. 
And thank you for these truths that we've been able to preach from your word. Thank you how we're able to sing these truths right now. I pray, Lord, that you will crystallize these truths into our heart as we sing. And I pray as the weeks and days go on that this song, these words, will just float into our hearts and our minds to constantly remind us to, to turn our hearts to you constantly. Amazing love, how can it be that my God should die for me? Lord, I pray this time would really encourage the saints right now. I pray, Lord, that we would be edified. And Father, if there's anyone here listening today, in person or online, that they know they haven't trusted your son, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior, if they haven't given their lives to your son, I pray, Lord, that they will come forward now and give their lives to you. And Father, will you do this? Will you be so gracious to these souls so they could have eternity with you, Lord? So, Lord, I pray that you bless this time of singing right now. May this time just be an absolute blessing to you, Lord. So thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.